Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to The Brian Ellis Show. Guys, my new book, Hello, My Name is Failure, is finally out on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Thanks to everyone who's already purchased the book. I can't wait to hear how you like it. For my followers only, if you buy the book, read it, and leave a review on Amazon, I will refund you your money. Just take a screenshot of it and send it to me. Why? Reviews are super valuable, especially for marketing a book. The more reviews a book gets, the more it gets boost on the Amazon algorithm, and the book can get shared around and help other people on their journey of pursuing their dreams as well. So leaving a review is so helpful to me. So once again, buy the book, read it, leave a review, and I'll refund your money. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to hear y'all's feedback. Today, I'm really excited. I have an exciting guest, David Naronia, actor, director, writer, and co-founder of the Acting Conservatory of the Arts School, BCA. David, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. So good to be with you, man. Yeah, it's so fun. Last time we did an interview together was, I think, three years ago when this podcast was called The Fail Journal, and we talked about all kinds of stuff. I think we talked about some of the stuff I'd like to talk about today, but I have a lot more curiosity nowadays, I feel like. And your life is so intriguing. I'm like, I want to dive into your world a little bit and ask questions. And I feel like in the past, you may have been my third or fourth interview I'd ever done. Wow. And so I think back then, I still had gotten nervous before interviewing people. And I got like dry mouth. And I remember just being like, it has to be good. Or now I'm just like, let's just get to the meat and let's just talk about fun stuff. Love it, man. Um, so thanks for being on my show again. I appreciate I'm excited. It. Cool. Um, I wanted to talk about your life as an actor specifically. You play, you wear many roles. You, you're a family man. You have kids. You're a husband. You, you know, co-founder of an acting conservatory school. I've been in some of your acting classes before. Love your teachings. And but I want to really dive into the acting one because I feel like there's actually a, a significant amount of people who listen to this podcast who are actors or aspiring actors, aspiring artists. And, and I think I attracted a lot of them back, especially when the podcast was the fail journal, because we're talking about the concept of failure, which if you're not comfortable with that concept, you shouldn't pursue acting art and things like that. It's a common thing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I wanted to first introduce you, but then just kind of, um, have you tell the audience a little bit of who you are. How did you get into acting and, um, start that pursuit in your life? I dove in when I was about 16 or 17 years old, as far back as, as high school. I'm 51 years old now, so I've been doing this for over 30 years. And for me, man, I think I got into it actually to round out my resume. I was headed to medical school. I was going to be a responsible Cuban kid. Yep. I was going to make my grandfather proud, and I was going to become a doctor. You know, I was a child of immigrants, and so I had to do something responsible with my life. And then in high school, my English teacher convinced me to audition for Sound of Music. And uh, I had no concept of acting whatsoever. I basically memorized my lines the way that I would memorize facts for like a science test. And so I auditioned for Sound of Music. I, I was Kurt Von Trapp. I, though I was 16 at the time, I was playing a 12-year-old, <laughs> yep. which tells you about how tall and how thin I was. And, uh, and I got the part. And, wow. um, you know, I had done a little bit of singing in choir and stuff. But, but for me, the reason why I took that leap was, A, because I, there was a teacher that I trusted, this English teacher. And um, I think the second part of that is somebody, somebody just said yes to me. And I think that was enough for me to take that leap. And then being on stage, feeling the applause and the lights was kind of like heroin. And wow. I think I was kind of ruined 
for the rest <laughs> of my life. Did you sing the song, I am 16? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I did, though it wasn't my part. But, <laughs> no, we sang my favorite things. Uh, oh, which, you're one of the sons. Yeah, I was okay. one of the sons. All right, I was cool, one of the sons. Cool. Yeah, no, I was not the dude. Although what was funny was in high school, the girl who was playing uh, one of the Von Trapps, mm-hmm. the one who sings that song, um, was actually my girlfriend at the time. Wow. So it was a, a blow to my ego mm. that while she was flirting with another dude who was on the football team singing that song, I was playing a 12-year-old. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah. That's cool. Because, yeah, when you, when you said the name of the character you played, I was thinking of the German kid. And I was yeah. like, I don't Why would they cast you as... German kid. No, like, I'm about as far from yeah, German being Cuban. Like, too brown. Be, too brown be to be German. Yeah, I was like, they they were really reaching. Maybe it was, diversity it was casting probably like a New days. York diversity casting thing. Yeah. Um, okay, so, you know, fast forward several years. Yeah. When was your first TV audition? So, that same teacher convinced me to be in The Fantastics, and I actually shared that story, uh, which was a, a profound story in my journey of, of how I got the role of the Fantastics, which was another musical that I did. So it was my junior year where I did Sound of Music. Fantastics was my senior year. And I had already applied to medical schools. And uh, I got into Carnegie Mellon because it just turned out that my high school English teacher uh, had been a former teacher of the associate head of Carnegie, which is, is known for inventing the internet, according to Al Gore, but is also known to be the oldest degree-giving school uh, in, in drama, even older than Juilliard. So I went there for four years, and I studied, and then I went to New York, because I was kind of Broadway-bound. That's where I wanted to be. Although, although camera work and film and television was really the thing that was drawing me, I went to New York first. And it was there that I started to audition, and for the life of me, man, the first things that I auditioned for were were all theater stuff. I did okay. crazy yeah. weird plays in, in New York. My first big audition, which I've shared with you before, was the Broadway show that I did, Love, Valor, Compassion. Is that when you ran out butt naked? Butt naked, yeah. where I made my Broadway <laughs> debut in the buff at 21 years old, wow. absolutely naked. The first camera stuff that I did was probably commercial work, to mm. be totally honest with you, because that's the stuff that working actors uh, really did. I mean, the first TV audition that I remember was Mrs. Santa Claus with Angela Lansbury, Mm. uh, who just actually passed away at 90-something years old. And uh, in that, I got to work with uh, Robbie Marshall, who's a famous choreographer, director of Pirates of the Caribbean, um, and, uh, of course, Angela Lansbury. And then there was a very famous gentleman uh, who wrote all the music for it. I, the crazy story about that audition was I had been doing a musical called Avenue X uh, just in regional theater. And we had actually, uh, we were rehearsing at a school. There was a, a, like a fundraiser for kids. And I went to this meal that was being served in this cafeteria. And about 48 hours later, I started feeling deathly, deathly ill. Mm. What I didn't realize was I had gotten chicken pox. Oh, no. And while rehearsing, this massive like cyborg cyclops welt formed on my forehead. Cause you know, back then wow. there was no vaccine or whatever. Dang. So I got deathly ill. Fast forward seven days later, they had to get me the hell out of there because um, it, it's like a CDC thing. Like you can't have chicken pox at a school. So they shipped me back off to New York. And when my now wife, then fiance picks me up, I am not lying. Cause I counted, I had over 200 blisters on my face. Dude, 
I honestly thought my acting career was over. I mean, this thing that I had on my forehead was just like yeah. horrific. I looked like something out of Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so fast forward to your question. First audition, a few weeks later, my skin has started to heal. The things are going down, blah, blah, blah. But I still had this like golf-sized divot in my- Golf-sized? Dude, oh my it, was God. Like, it was like the size of a dime that wow. I had. It was, you know, like the mother thing. Yeah. There. And so- um, but my agent says to me, you've got to go in for this audition. It's with Angela Lansbury. It's before TV musicals, uh, you know, uh, Cinderella and all of these other ones with Whitney Houston and stuff had happened. And so I put on drag queen style, like just trying, just slopped it on, just trying to cover all of the marks on my face. And I wa and they knew. They had actually kind of cleared out the place a little bit. They called me in at the end of the day, you know, just because they knew I was super, super self-conscious. Um, and they auditioned me for a different role. And then the casting director says, hey, would you take a look at the, the role of the Italian stable boy, which was actually a lead? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take a look at it. And I, I've always been a quick study with lines. Uh, if, if it's well written, it kind of just sticks in my brain. And so five minutes later, she comes out. She's like, how much more time do you need? I said, oh, I'm ready to go. So I go in and I audition and the next thing I find out, I've got this lead opposite Angela wow. Lansbury and a bunch of other people that were in the cast. And um, they shipped me off to LA and I may, after doing two years of theater, some of which was actually on Broadway, I, I was, I was going to make more money in seven weeks in LA than I had made in two years in New York. And I was like, Ooh, I love and how you. old were you? I was... I 22 years old. 22. Can I ask, what did that job pay you when you were 22? Oh gosh, man, that's a really good question. I mean, at the time, you have to, you have to. I probably ended up making maybe 50 grand off of that job. Holy, or something like I mean, that. in today's day, for seven days, that's a lot of money. Oh well, so sorry. So I would, I would be working for seven weeks. I would seven be weeks for okay. seven weeks. Okay, okay. Oh, this is seven days. That makes more sense. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I was like, dang, <laughs> like that would be later. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. no, I wasn't yeah. making that at the time. But uh, yeah, man, I went and uh, got to work on the Universal lot where, you know, you see the Back to the Future. And I thought, you know, I thought I, thought I, was, I, thought I was the man. I thought I was the man. Yeah. And it was, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful experience, man. When you, when you book a job like that, because there's so much idea around fame when it comes to the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. I remember pursuing acting in um, San Francisco. I book a commercial audition. or I, I book a commercial job and I'm like, I've made it. <laughs> uh -huh. Dude, Steven Spielberg is going to see this. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, it, it, I mean, a very ignorant perspective of how the industry works. Obviously, doing a commercial for, you know, this off brand of, of shoes is, you know, no one. I cast commercials now, you know, and nobody who's in the real industry sees those necessarily. Um, I, well, I, I would say there are some long form ones we've done that have been good. But, but I'm wondering what emotions that invoke in you as a 22 year old booking this lead role in this big production, um, co-starring with someone, you know, super big. Mm -hmm. Um, what did that feel like? What were your expectations? How was that? You think that it's going to be linear brother. And you think that you think if I've got this now at 22 by 30, I'm Tom Cruise. I mean, this yeah. is just because you think it's two plus two is equal to four, but like the acting industry is like nonlinear math, which I never studied. I just, I reference it because I don't understand it and it doesn't make any sense. And I know that it doesn't move in a line. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time you think, well, I've got this job. The next one is going to pay me more. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a, a bigger job opposite bigger people. And you think that it's cumulative, except if you listen to any actor's journey, even those that have made it, they have no idea if they're standing at the edge of the next precipice and never going to work again. 
I mean, this mm. is a story that every actor actually deals with. You don't know if this is your last gig. Totally. And so for me, I think it was, I think it was humbling. Um, but, but I think I thought I had made it way further than, than I had. Okay. Yeah. When did you, when did you realize that? Like, was it, um, you do the shows and then you realize, oh, maybe I'm not getting the offers I wanted or what was kind of that realization process for you? I mean, I think after you book a big, uh, uh, your first big gig, you go, okay, well, Hey, I got my first one. Um, and then you just keep doing the hustle. I mean, I had just arrived in LA, LA, if somebody had just told me buy better clothes, get a tan, you'll work more and, and conservatory training. It's like, ah, oh, that's a nice bonus. Um, I think I would have focused on some of the externals a little bit more. It took me three years to really start establishing myself. I didn't book my, my first series regular, which for the working actor is a little bit like the Holy grail till, I mean, till I was 29. Mm. Wow. And the rest of them were guest spots. Yeah. You know, or, or a couple of recurrings. You know, I did a handful of episodes, like four or five, six episodes on a, on a six feet under uh, HBO series uh, that Kathy Bates actually cast me in and Alan Ball, who won the Oscar for American Beauty, uh, was the creator of that show. I mean, I had a lot of great experiences between 21 and 29, mm -hmm. but they were all a lot of one-offs, man. Yeah. You, you uh, acted with John Krasinski. I did. And, and the show Jack Ryan. Yep. Correct? Mm -hmm. um, what has been your experience working alongside famous actors? It's a great question, man. Um, I've worked with uh, Ming-Na, who's probably most recently known for being in The Mandalorian. I've worked with Angie Harmon, who uh, did Rizzoli and Isles. She, she and I were on a series. Um, I worked with Josh Brolin, who the younger generation would know as Thanos uh, uh -huh. in a lot of the MCU stuff. Um, I got to work with uh, the original Captain Kirk, and um, and I've gotten to work with a lot of a lot of famous people. I've I've always played the guy standing next to number one on the call sheet. I've actually had good fortune, and and I don't know if it's just the way that I I deal with people or whatever, or maybe it's that I'm not typically a threatening person to them. But I find them to be incredibly human and in a beautiful way uh, flawed like the rest of us. I mean, they're all dealing with the same stuff. You know, how are their kids doing? How is their marriage doing? Uh, they're worried whether their show is going to get canceled or not. Typically because, you know, as you make more, you spend more, your overhead is higher, you got to send your kid to college, school or whatever. So I think with every single famous person that I've worked with, definitely the more humble I became and the less of a punk and an, an ass I was as I got older and more mature, I think what I realized is they just wanted somebody to, to, to deal with them in a normal way, mm -hmm. um, ironically, because everybody around them is catering to all kinds of, of kookiness. Mm -hmm. And the weird human kind of equalizer is that actually what we all desperately want is just to be talked to like a normal person. So... Like Josh and I became friends. We haven't spoken in a while, but we became friends at one point. He just said, hey, here's the keys to my ranch. Get away with your girl and go. Oh, wow. uh, Angie Harmon and I walked through the Billy Graham Museum after she moved to North Carolina with her family. Um, you know, I, I and, and though I, I wasn't close in any way, shape or form to John Krasinski, I spent a few months on set with him and Michael, who you would know from House of Cards, um, Michael and I actually had a lot of really beautiful conversations and he was 
just a super down-to-earth, humble guy. John was as well. It's just John was a busier guy. He's executive producer on the show. He's, I think, has writing credit on the show as well. And then obviously is John Krasinski. He's mm-hmm. like juggling an entire studio deal. Um, but I have to say this about him. Um, he, he did something for me that I don't think a lot of other uh, the other celebrities, certainly not of his uh, you know, stature and caliber. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but there's a big scene towards the end of my arc on season two of, of Jack Ryan. And we were in Cartagena, which is this beach town in, in Colombia. I had been actually commuting between Redding, California and Bogota, which would take me about 28 hours and three flights to get door to door. And uh, we had this big, big scene uh, that was at the end of it. Quick, funny story on that one. It was my audition scene. So oftentimes to test, to test you, they will give you the toughest scene as your audition scene, specifically if there's like a bigger arc for your character. And so I memorized it. I actually did my audition with my wife off camera, playing my wife off camera. Um, and the scene was set on the beach and I was dressed in linen clothes as South American dudes are wont to be on the beach and tossing a ball to my son. And so I memorized that scene and I got the gig. So because I had that one filed away, I kind of ignored it. And then I'm sitting in my hotel and I realized, oh gosh, in a couple of days we're flying to Cartagena. I should go read that scene. Well, on a television series, they're constantly doing rewrites. And yep. you know there's rewrites because there's asterisks right next, <laughs> next to the thing. When, when the script is locked, they just do these little points so that you know everything that's changed. So I decided to check my email, but honestly, I hadn't been because you get flooded with every rewrite for the entire episode, even when it has nothing to do with you. Oh, man. So honestly, most actors are a little bit self-involved, so you ignore everything <laughs> unless it has to do with you. Totally, yeah. And you, so, you go crazy if you focus on everyone's rewrite. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's not my business. And so I open up the email and I look for the scene. I find the scene. And then all of a sudden I realize it's like bullet holes all along, completely rewritten. And the first thing that I thought was, oh, oh crap, I'm going to have to rememorize this thing. And as I start to read it, the first line of narrative description says, my, my character uh, was Jose Marzan. It says, Jose Marzan emerges from the ocean shirtless, water dripping down his chest. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing I did was I put down the script and I went to the gym because I was like, oh my gosh, man, I'm going to have my shirt off for this entire damn scene. (laughs) Wait, how how long before you had to shoot this? Uh, Oh man, it was just like a couple weeks. Okay, but you're like, I'm going to go drop some pounds, shred up, shred city. Something. (laughs) Maybe just to give myself the delusion of improvement and control. And Uh, so um, there we are on the beach and we've got to shoot all day and you know, so of course I'm like, you know, doing push-ups and sit-ups and doing the whole thing. But it was also, again, without giving too much away, a little bit of an emotional dramatic scene. Fast forward to the rap party, because that was kind of like the last scene in Colombia. And this is where I give John real credit. Uh, and this is where I would, I would call him an actor's actor, like somebody who really gives props and gives equal respect, no matter what their stature is. He walks into the party and not more than five seconds later, he finds me and he comes over to me. And uh, the first thing he says is, dude, you effing killed the scene today. Wow. And he said, you know, man, you ship an entire crew, 200 people to a beach somewhere. You wait the entire series for this particular scene. But if the actor doesn't show up on camera and do what he needs to do, it's all for nothing. Mm -hmm. And he's like, so thank you. Thank you for, and dude, I have to say, like, I'll take that one to my grave. Dude, that's awesome. It just felt like, all right, I did my job, man. Yeah. And to have mutual respect from somebody who I respect. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Who's brought me so much laughter and who's yeah. such a phenomenal actor. For me, that was a good day. 
that's it's got to be it's got to be wild. And I think the reason I say John Krasinski, because you've acted with a plethora of people that you know have acted way beyond people like John, but he he's he's dear and dear. He's true and dear to our hearts for millennials because of The Office and then Absolutely. going into a heartthrob of Jack Ryan and all these uh, 13 Hours and other movies where he's, you know, he, he got out of the comedic role. And A Quiet Place. A quiet, uh, oh, obviously, A Quiet Place. Franchise. Yeah. Amazing franchise. It's, it's wild. There's, I'm sorry if these questions are kind of bouncing all over the place, but I, I want to do these interviews with curiosity and not agenda. You know, where it's not like, I don't want to have to have a perfect linear circle that comes back. And now we end his story. It's like, I have, I'm legitimately curious about your life. I'm curious about um, what it's been like, because you've been in the industry for how many years? You said 30 years now, a little over 30 years? 34 years. 34 years. You've been in dozens and dozens of opportunities, film, TV, Broadway, plays, like you name it, music videos, I'm sure. (laughs) Like you've been in so many things. But you're not quote unquote famous. Nope. Um, but you're a working actor in the industry getting to work with these A-listers. Yeah. What is it like working with these A-listers and these people that you're, you, you said, like, I'm never the guy, but I'm standing right next to the guy. Yeah. What is that, what has that process been like for you? Because I imagine there's got to be a piece of you that's like, well, I'd like to be the guy. Mm. Um, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, or maybe it's also like you're paying your dues and maybe that comes in the future. Mm. But that's a big tug of war that I like to talk to actors about, the, the tug of war of doing this for the attention, the fame, the love of it, the craft of it, the yeah. beauty of it. And I'm just curious a little bit about your internal perspective of that whole process. It's been a lifelong journey, man. I mean, I'll, I'll, the honest truth is I don't know that any actor, any artist gets into the craft aiming to be number two. Yeah. I don't know of any athlete that aims to be number two. I don't know, I don't know of a baseball player who's like, you know what, man, I, I'm, I'm aiming for the minors. Yeah. No. You, you aim, you're aiming for the moon, and then you figure out where it is that you land, and then you, you, you go on a life journey to make peace, uh, to continue to strive, to fight, whatever it is. I mean, for me... I got into this thing, and you know, in the pre-interview, we chatted just briefly about this, but I think it's worth mentioning. The biggest mistake and the thing that caused me the most pain about this whole journey of being an artist is that I got into this for the wrong reasons initially. What were those reasons? I got into it to be affirmed and to be given significance, mm. which is like hoping that the gun that you're playing Russian roulette with Mm -hmm. is going to shoot you with kisses and hearts and Cupid's arrow. It's just not its job. It is not the job of the industry to affirm you or to supply you with worth, value, significance, and affirmation. I, I don't know that it's anybody's job to do that for anyone. That's something that we've got to sort out, but that's where I started. And that's why I referred to it as heroin when I first started, because it was this insatiable thing. If I got the gig, then it was about the money. If, 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 if I didn't have the money, then I would plummet down. I mean, my, my inner self-worth, my self-worth was as chaotic and volatile as the stock market or the real estate market. And so try being in a relationship with that thing. It's, it's a mess, man. 
it's also super dangerous. I've made my biggest mistakes at my bottoms. You know, I've, I've almost blown up my marriage. I've, you know, I've been my messiest self because I pinned my worth to an industry that is not in the business of doing that. It's in the business of telling stories on a good day, of entertaining, of doing all those things. And it was through, honestly, hours and hours of expensive therapy that I, and I'm talking like in my mid-30s, I finally came to grips with this. So we're talking about a good 15 to 20 years of wrestling with this, this bear. And it was with one of my therapists. His name is Barry. He's a man that I credit. He's like my own personal Obi-Wan. I kept, I, I, I kept describing the industry, and please forgive the reference. It's probably going to piss people off. But, but I, I referred to it as like a mail-order bride that I thought I had ordered the virgin, but I had actually bought the whore. Hmm. And he said, well, whoever told you... <laughs> Mm-hmm. whoever guaranteed first of all you know your paradigm's completely off but whoever guaranteed you that thing that thing never owed you that thing and as soon as i i was able to look at the industry and go oh wait a second you don't owe me anything i'm not entitled to anything doesn't matter that i went to carnegie mellon nobody gives a crap doesn't matter that you've done a hundred plus credits nobody actually cares so then I had to dig deep and start to figure out, well, what do I care about? What do I want to do with this thing that I've spent half my life at the time pursuing? Do I want to quit it? Do I want to renegotiate with it? And it was the latter that I've chosen now to do. So like on the set of Jack Ryan, people looked at me like I was some kind of uh, you know, <laughs> so, you know, my faith is very important to me and how we treat other people is super important to me. And, and I, I know I'm sure a lot of people, whether you're a person of faith or not, or whatever your beliefs are, I think we can all agree that like kindness is like a supernatural thing, specifically like on a set with a bunch of egos, be nice to anybody and you're going to part waters and seas. And so like, if the person who brings you the coffee, you say, Hey, how you doing? You remember their name? It's like, Again, your mother, Teresa. So I remember um, something had happened to John. I, I, I'm not at liberty to say, but something dangerous had happened on the set of, of Jack Ryan. His safety had been uh, put at risk. And so they were shutting down production in Columbia, like shutting down the entire show and everybody was going to be flown back a couple days later, even though we hadn't finished shooting scenes. And so I look down from my balcony in Cartagena's and I see that everybody, Michael, every, everybody, all the leads, and then John's producing partner are down by the pool having a beer. So, you know, I, I'm an actor. I don't want to be left out of this party. So <laughs> Sounds I, like a party. Yeah. Sounds like a party. So I scuttle <laughs> down by the pool and I'm like, ooh, I get to hang out with all the number ones. You know, when, when do I ever have all these guys sitting by the pool, yeah. same pool that I am? So I just hung out with them for a few hours. They told me what had happened. And I remember uh, because I spoke Spanish and they didn't, I was able to talk to, to the staff. And so she was, she was going to order John's producing partner. And, and so I ordered for her in Spanish. And then when her beer came to the poolside, I actually got out of the pool, grabbed it for her and brought it over. And you would have thought I had done some phenomenal act of kindness. Why? Because actors who are known to be egotistical creatures had actually just chosen to be humble and to serve to somebody else. Yeah. And 
Dude, now for me, when I shot, um, I was in Budapest uh, a couple of years ago and I was shooting a show called FBI International. And I wanted to honor the culture there because, because the Hungarians have been so incredibly generous and kind, just good, hardworking, salt of the earth people. And so for three days, I memorized two sentences in Hungarian to just basically say, thank you for having me here. It's been an honor. I don't know. It was like 10 words. It took me 72 hours to memorize this wow. thing. And when they would call rap, you know, they always say, hey, it's a rap on, you know, this actor, that actor. So they announced that it was a rap on me. I said, hey, guys, if I can just have a minute. And I want to I say something to you. And in Hungarian, I thank them for being so welcoming to me. And dude, there were people like in tears. They gave me hugs afterwards. Oh, wow. My goal now, when I show up at a set, number one, I treat it like it could be the last time that I'm ever there. I love that. Because it's never guaranteed. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I talk to everybody. Hey, what lens are you on? What camera are you on? Oh, wow. What are you doing with the jib and the thing and the motorized this, that, or the other? Uh, I treat everybody the same, whether it's the director or it's the, it's the PA. And I just try to be kind and gracious and I'll, I'll tell you, it has transformed, first of all, my relationships with everybody on the set, more importantly, my relationship to the art, the art form, this craft of acting um, that I embarked on when I was 17 years old. Mm. Wow. And I, and I wouldn't change it for the world, no matter where I go from here, mm -hmm. whether it's lateral, down, less, more. I don't actually know that I would relate to the industry any different than I do today from here on out. Mm. What changed in your life to go from finding all of your value worth mm. from the industry to where you approach it from a place of love and contentment and excitement and are able to detach your identity from it? Like what changed in your life? I hit bottom, man. You know, I, I hit a really gnarly, gnarly bottom. Um, you know, uh, I, I've shared this story in many different, and so I'll just give the very, very short version, but I was part of a show called Jersey Boys, um, and uh, I caused vocal damage to myself. I, I was being offered Broadway on it, um, and this was going to be the biggest job that I had ever done. I mean, this was, this was going to be the lead of leads uh, playing, you know, the lead in a show that I knew that whoever sang Can't Take My Eyes Off of You by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons and the other 25 songs every night that I had to sing, whoever played this role was going to win a Tony. Mm. And I woke up in a panic attack knowing that I couldn't sing the role six months before we were even due to start rehearsing in New York. And I knew that I had to turn it down. And I woke up my wife and I said, I can't do it. And that began a, a, a kind of a quick spiral down to my utter bottom where everybody, my manager, my agent, uh, the director of Jersey Boys, one of the Jersey Boys, <laughs> everybody called and said, um, this is the most disastrous decision you'll ever make in your entire life. And um, thankfully, my representation didn't drop me, but I'm sure they thought about it. Mm. I'm sure they, they questioned my judgment. And because I was lying and I, I wasn't telling them what was going on with my voice, I was afraid that it would get out and it would end my career. I was still hoping that my, my voice would recuperate down the line. And, you know, you got to be careful about these things. It's like, a, you know, an athlete in some ways saying, hey, I've got an injured knee. It's like you might not get drafted, right? Yeah. You got to be careful with those things. But hitting my bottom and then having to 
slowly, slowly. I mean, I'm talking about a decade or more. It's, it's, uh, you know, I know that this is an overused word now, but, uh, you know, I'd be remiss to not say that it wasn't a traumatic experience in the, like, actual brain yeah. <laughs> category of the word. Um, still to this day, if I hear some of those songs, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get full-on, you know, flashbacks. Wow. But I think, I think that's it. Sometimes you have to hit bottom, and everything that you've been holding on to um, just kind of has to be just pulled out from the roots, brother. Mm. Has Hollywood negatively impacted your life mm. in any way that you look back and are like, this has had its toll on me? I'm sure it has. Yes, it has. I don't blame it anymore, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, if you're going to dance with the devil, then, you know, don't bitch about getting burned. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, if you're going to, if you're going to gamble big, if you're going to, if you're going to go in big and you're going to try to do huge things, whether it's fly to the moon, be a professional athlete, um, do anything ambitious in life. It's like, you're going to be at the edge. You're going to be at the precipice of things. You're going to be, uh, you're going to be working with people that are messy, as messy as you are, go figure, as ambitious as you are. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't blame it anymore. I mean, the industry has never claimed to not be dysfunctional. <laughs> I mean, just watch any MTV VH1 biopic on any rock band. You know, I don't yeah. know that there's any rock stars that are like, holy crap, I didn't realize that drugs and, you know, went with rock and roll. Yeah. It's like, listen, man, I mean, you didn't sign up to do missionary work in Africa, yeah. right? Yep. I mean, like if, you know, if we were getting surprised there on the mission field, then mm -hmm. it'd be like, oh, wow, okay, that was surprising. But um, we're, we're dancing with elements where people are messy and broken and creative. And creative people are, are wild. Mm -hmm. Creative people are a, a bit crazy, bro. You know, I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about how the actors actually have to be scientifically speaking, malleable creatures. Mm -hmm. How the hell else can you explain anybody wanting to actually become somebody else? Like mm -hmm. in psychological circles, this is psychosis. Yeah. <laughs> but somehow to us, that makes sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, uh, you know, crazy things have happened along the way, but you yeah, listen, man, too, like I got to own up to my own stuff. Like I was crazy too. So like, no, I don't, I don't blame it anymore. I enter it now fully sober um, in every sense of the word. And I come to it knowing that there might be elements. You know what the irony is? The healthier that I've gotten, the less crazy or the less susceptible or the less like blamey I mm -hmm. get towards the industry. Mm. It's like, yeah, no, I, I can see some weird stuff coming down. Now it's up to me to, what am I going to do about that? Yeah. I have another question. I want to take this into another direction is um, you're a man of faith mm -hmm. and I can't think of a more villainized group of people in the Hollywood mm -hmm. woke industry than Christianity. Um, some that's obviously like, yeah, there's, there's obviously a lot of dysfunction that can be found in the church, like any group of people that you can find. Sure. Um, but it's, it's almost specifically, it's very negatively aimed at Christianity yeah. and, um, it's interesting because Hollywood is very liberal, very woke, very um, anti a lot of, you know, <laughs> things that, you know, we stand for. 
what's it like to be a man of faith in the industry? And how much do you have to censor yourself around individuals in order to keep them as friends or to keep opportunity um, to not shut down a potential movie role? What's that like for you? It's a question that I've been dealing with now for, you know, over, I mean, gosh, close to 15 years. I'm going to kind of give you a first surprising answer and then I'll unpack it a little bit. The truth of the matter is, at least to my knowledge, I've never actually been affected because of my faith. And it's not for necessarily being quiet about it. Like, I'm not one to walk in and talk about politics and religion first blush. Mm -hmm. I'm not Mr. Fox News. I don't just step in and start talking about this stuff. But I wouldn't step in and, and make, hey, how you doing? And then now let me launch into some political diatribe either. My angle always is to actually come in with love, respect, and kindness. Listen, are, are there anti-Christian elements in Hollywood? I'm sure there are. I actually think that what a lot of people bump up against is what they think is judgment. Mm. That's actually because they actually know very little about Christianity. Mm -hmm. The little that they know about Christianity is kind of like a, a negative caricature. Yeah. Okay. But I've had some really uncomfortable conversations and I've had some really amazing conversations. I mean, when I, I out of respect for the actor, okay, so there's a story, uh, there's a story that I've shared, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell it here. I was on set. I'll leave out the names of the two actors, but it was, uh, it was Jack Ryan. And uh, we were on set and there was a male actor and a female actor and the male actor went to go show uh, something that I presume was pornographic. And this is why I know this because he turns to me and he says, hey, I want you to acknowledge that she's given me permission to show her what I'm about to show her. Now in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I don't have a manual for this moment. Like I'm not, am I supposed to actually say yes to this? Interesting. Yeah. So what I <laughs> rationalize maybe in my head is, well, I'm not condoning because I'm not looking, but I do acknowledge that she just said yes. So I said, I acknowledge that she said yes. This is what I say. He shows her whatever. I just, I'm reading my Kindle, doing my thing. Now, over the three months that I had been flying back and forth to Columbia, I had had a lot of nice conversations with a lot of the actors on set or whatever. And uh, one of them had said to me, so, hey, what are you doing back up in Redding, California, Northern California? This is always a topic of conversation. So I said, well, actually, my family and I moved there to be a part of a faith community. A few years back, I actually went to the School of Ministry and, oh, wow, that's fascinating. And, you know, they're sure, you know, there's some eye twitching, but... But they won't outright judge you immediately. Because really what they're trying to sniff out is, how are you going to react to me? How, how will you treat me? Okay. Mm -hmm. So I just always lead with respect, kindness, love, sense of humor, all these kinds of things. So I actually shared with them that I had actually just written and directed a, faith, a kid's faith-based musical, Bright Ones, that I had written and produced for Bethel Music. And actually completely like, celebrated me and said, man, that's amazing. I hope the film gets picked up and distributed and all this kind of stuff. So they had heard little inklings of me mm -hmm. about this aspect of my life. So f go back now to, we're on set. I've acknowledged whatever it is that this person has shown this other person. And then I kid you not, man, about two minutes later, I was just quietly reading, the male actor who had showed the female actor whatever this inappropriate thing is, looks up at me and says... I know that you're a man of faith and I owe you an apology. Oh, wow. 
he said, I shouldn't have shown her that. Now, brother, I hadn't said not a word, not a word. I wasn't even like quietly stewing in my Christian judgment. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I was just me in that moment. Yeah. But here's what it did. It cracked open this whole moment because they had been having this conversation about like, evil and this that now they had framed evil as ignorance which of course i think ignorance can lead to evil but i think that there's a more three-dimensional conversation for babies this. are evil yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> i don't think you want to go down that logical yeah, road, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> long story short i was able to share with them that i had just been in iraq erbil uh, uh in northern iraq shooting a documentary with sean foyt who's a worship leader and i actually got to share with them an interview that I had done with a Yazidi woman, one of the most persecuted people groups on the planet. They've been genocided like 73 times. Mm. And I got to share how her people, there were a group of about 120 girls who committed uh, collective suicide because they knew that ISIS was coming and was going to systematically rape all of them. And I shared the story. And now this is a first person interview I've done with a woman who's whose near relatives, 120, have actually committed suicide. Mm. And so I just shared the story, and then I just said, that's evil. Mm. And it was after I said that, that then the man said, you're a man of faith, I owe you an apology. So what did I do? I didn't come in with a bunch of theology. Yeah. I didn't come in with a bunch of judgment. I just came in as myself. How am I treating? Have I listened to you? Have I cared for you? And if we do those things, we can prime the situation that if, if the door opens and you ask me a question, Mm -hmm. I might be able to share something with you. So I've never experienced, but I've had uncomfortable conversations too. I was in a makeup trailer once where somebody found out that I was Christian because I was talking to the lead who was looking for, ironically, a Christian school in LA to put their child in. So I mentioned that we had our kid in a Christian thing. We were kind of doing the Christian fish handshake. I thought she was a, a kind of a, a cultural Catholic, but not necessarily a, what we would describe as a practicing Christian. The, the makeup artist was a, a, a gay gentleman. Now, up until this point, we had talked about restaurants. We had talked about music. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I can get along with anybody. But the moment he found out that I was a believer, yeah. all of a sudden, and it was just the three of us in the trailer, let's just say it got very uncomfortable. And I, I ended up having one of the most complex, nuanced conversations I've ever had around the idea of sexuality in mm-hmm. that makeup trailer. Mm-hmm. And all I kept doing was just coming in sensible, rational, calm. And I remember ending the conversation where actually the gentleman said to me, David, but do you know how hurtful your people have been to, to people like me? And I said to him, um, his name isn't Gary, but Gary, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you were hurt. I'm sorry that you experienced any sense of bullying or torment. It would never be certainly my position to do that to you. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. How have I treated you? Oh, David, you've been nothing but kind. I said, good, because I can only speak for myself. And I left the trailer knowing that I would be talked about. (laughs) But I hope that I was at least able to plant some seeds of kindness, man. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. That's very, that's very interesting insight. And it is interesting because in my day-to-day life, meeting with other entrepreneurs or coaching or networking, whatever, 
I don't go and blast off that I'm a man of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people find that out about me through, if they have any relationship with me, they find that out, right? But it's, it's, it's not like you said, I'm not one to bring up religion and politics in any conversation, especially living in California. I'm not going to bring up <laughs> politics, right? It's funny because I'm, I'm too liberal for the conservatives. I'm too conservative for the liberals. Um, and, and Same that, here, brother. We should start our own yeah, party. Exactly. And that's how I am with spirituality. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm too heathenistic for Christians, but I'm too Christian for heathens. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a very interesting dynamic, but it's like, I, I, I have, I, I love God, right? I have a relationship with Jesus and um, all the other politics and beliefs and you can and can't do this. You know, I fall somewhere Drives in the middle. Yeah, and so, um, and I, I don't believe it's my place to judge everybody else and what they do. Um, I think it's my job to love people well, you know, like you said. So I love that. Um, I want to ask a few questions yeah. about failure. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an actor, you have to be very close to, uh, you're, you're, you're getting rejection a lot. Yep. It's something I feel like you have to be comfortable living in. If you don't enjoy auditioning, you probably shouldn't be an actor because that's part of that's most of the job is auditioning. 100%. Uh, can you give me an example of a time you failed and you shame spiraled? And it was like maybe something really embarrassing happened. Now, and I don't mean you go into an audition and you don't get the part. I mean like you have an interaction with a celebrity mm-hmm. And you say something and you're like, oh, I should have said that. Oh, that was stupid. Oh, I missed, I missed, I did, you know, you don't know talk about the shame spiral oh, yeah. where you're laying awake at bed at night and you're sweating. And could you share a, a situation where maybe that's happened and how you've dealt with that? So many instances of things that I think we could call, we could call failure. I mean, a quick thing on just auditioning for anybody that's aspiring to be an actor. And Brian Cranston uh, from Breaking Bad, I recently saw a clip on social where he talked about this. Um, and um, the whole modality and paradigm that we have around auditioning, I wish I had understood this earlier. It's hard when you're young because you're just, you're naive and you're ambitious and you're, you just, you honestly, maybe you have to believe that you're going to get every single one and when you don't. But it's like, if you look, not that I'm like a baseball guy, but if you look at baseball and you realize that if you hit a ball that gets thrown at you 90 miles an hour, four times out of 10, you, you are making hundreds of millions of dollars as a hitter in the MLB. And, and even if you hit it two or three times out of 10, you are probably going to be on a major league baseball team. If I had understood that auditioning was like that, like I actually did my stats once, just for giggles once, yeah. I was like, and so I went back on all the emails and I tallied and I'm like, yeah, I'm maybe booking two or three out of every 10 auditions, wow. man. And then, at least as a baseball player, you know that if you're going to step up to the plate, somebody's going to pitch a ball at you. But as an actor, you have no guarantee that anybody's going to call you up and give you an audition. 100%, yeah. So, if you are represented, or if you are finding your way to gigs one way or another... I wish I'd had growth mindset as well because for me it was binary. It was like I get it or I don't get it. I'm mm-hmm. making the money and they negotiate a, a big fat deal or I'm taking a step back financially and professionally. For me, it was very binary for a very, very long time. I mean, on this last gig that my I, I just did, Grey's Anatomy, and uh, my, my <laughs> agent was pissed that they wouldn't give me what was called top of show. So when you do a guest spot, there's like a number that the union says, unless you're like a big celebrity They're not going to break top of show. And it's like this number. And they weren't giving me that number. But I also knew that I was only going to work for one day. 
they usually buy you out for eight days. Mm-hmm. So I was only working for one day. And uh, my agent's like, so, you know, do you think you want to do it? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, first of all, no one's, no one's calling me up right now. Like yeah. I'm living eight, eight hours away from, you know, and I'm running a school. So yeah. this all worked out really nice totally, for me. Yeah. I got my 15 year old. We hopped in the car. We drove all night because I couldn't get the last flight out of mm-hmm. SAC because we live in the boondocks. I drove to LA. I shot all day. My, I got to fulfill a promise to my son to take him to set, which I've done with every single one. I love that. My two older ones got to meet John on that set and got a picture with him and whatever. And, uh, and we got to spend Friday at, at, at Universal. Failures, oh, dude, I mean, I showed up, I showed up hungover and drunk to my first pilot. No way. I was 30 years old. Wow. Because I had gone out drinking with a buddy of mine and I didn't realize how freaking scared I was. Mm. So I just kept drinking because I was so amped and nervous. And I mean, this is the gig of a lifetime that I've been waiting for. And I am fairly certain I probably reeked of alcohol on my first day of shooting. Wow. And so, you know, thinking back on those moments, uh, stupid things that I've probably done around females that, you know, I, I regret. Yeah. Um, treating people uh, disrespectfully and being like a, a total jerk around petty things that actors are known to, whether it's the dressing room or this, mm-hmm. that, or the other. Um. I vomited on the set of NYPD Blue because I, I, I was smoking uh, cigarettes for the scene and, and instead of letting people in and letting them know that I wasn't a smoker, I just kept smoking and inhaling cigarette after cigarette. So by the time they went around to my coverage on my tight, I had smoked over a pack of cigarettes already. Wow. And I was too prideful and too embarrassed to let them know that I wasn't feeling well. I have a tuna sandwich for lunch. <laughs> I step on set... They come in for my tight, and I still remember my character's name, um, the kind of raspy-voiced blonde who was a smoker. Right before the take, she's like, sweetie, are you all right? She's like, because you're looking kind of green. And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I step on set, and she's like, Gabe, I know you've got the drugs in your bag. And I'm like, wah. And I vomited tuna sandwich all over to the right on her shoes, to the left on the dude's shoes, all over the set. There was... Tuna vomit. And um, the how, next, how old were you when this happened? I was probably about 24 years old. So that that's an age. That's terrifying at that age. Oh. You're thinking, I'm never working again. Oh, I'm never going to is- work. And this was with uh, Bosco. So if you know anything about NYPD Blue, uh, uh, Bochco, Bochco, he, he was the show creator for this thing. And he was known to be a, a pretty tough guy. Yeah. So I begged the director. I said, please, please. You know, like, like this isn't going to make it through the grapevine. But yeah. I naively say to the director, please don't tell Steven that I vomited <laughs> all over his set. So I'm in the makeup trailer the next day. And he's there with one of the male leads. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and I'm just trying to be invisible. Yeah. I'm trying not to move and to be noticed. And all of a sudden, from, from the right, I hear him say, in this very deep voice, he's like, and how are you feeling this morning? <laughs> and I was like, ah, uh, there we go. So they gave me cloves the next day. Oh, I don't know if that's any better, dude. I'm like, cloves make me sick. So yeah, man, all kinds of messy mistakes. Wow. I, I love that. Thanks for sharing that story with me. Yeah. That's funny. We got to, I got Are these episodes on TV or can you find them online? Oh, I'm sure you can. Now with streamers, you can find all this okay, kind of I'm stuff. Gonna have to find, I'm going to do a deep dive on you, David, and find some of this <laughs> stuff. David, I feel like 90% of the people I see who say they want to pursue acting, it almost feels like it's coming from this place of what you talked about 
you, the place you came from at the beginning. This need to be seen, heard, known, loved, accepted, and all of that. A lot of people get very famous from that need and desire. It's not the most healthy motive, and I feel like that's why there's a lot of suicide and drug abuse and alcohol abuse. What if they make it? Because it's like, it's not actually filling the gap and hole that I thought it would. I got very famous and wealthy because of this. This was the drive. How would you encourage an actor to pursue an industry, a craft like this? Or even what would you encourage them to ask themselves before running after this type of industry? The first thing I would say is get as well as you can. You're not going to figure it all out, just like you're not going to be the perfect person before you get married. You're certainly not going to be wise just before you have kids. It never works that way. But if you've got any deep traumas, wounds, tendencies towards addictions, then just get some help. And I mean, by help, it's like you don't have to have it all figured out. Just get yourself a counselor. It's just somebody that you're, you're talking with where you're, you're starting to sort some of that stuff out. <clears throat> because the irony is, is that you're 100% right, by the way. It is a, an incredibly powerful motivator because the need for significance, value, affirmation is just deeply human. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I mean, this is probably going to be true of a lot of things that people pursue, but I do think that there's some unique things about about being an artist, mm-hmm. namely that it takes, I say this to a lot of my students at the school, but maybe one of the greatest acts of courage is to take something from the inside of you that is deeply personal and vulnerable and to share it with the world. And then on top of that, if you're an artist, get ready for a critic to actually be sitting out in the audience and to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down on your childhood trauma, which you just wrote a one-man show about. Mm -hmm. But get honest with the fact that you were the person who decided to take this tender, personal thing from the inside of you and share it with the world. Now, here's the upside. This is what I also share with my students. It's a great privilege of the artist to stand at the edge of the precipice and to leap, knowing, because we're men of faith, I can share this part with you, knowing that your good, good father will catch you. But you are taking a leap of faith every time you step on set and you go hit that mark. I mean, I've been doing this now for close to 40 years, and the last thing that I had to shoot dealt with, um, and I have to leave some of the information out because it hasn't aired yet, but had to deal with a really traumatic experience. And in this particular thing that I did, um, my son, the character's son, has gotten shot three times. Now, when I prepare, like good sheet music, if like if you're a person who's a musician, you can sight read stuff. If, if the situation is constructed in a really visceral way, as this scene would be, I've got three boys myself. As soon as I started to read the material, I started to get emotional. Mm. So my wife had just said to me, how much time do you need to prep? I called her like 30 seconds later and I said, get in, get in. <laughs> let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's just, let's just shoot the thing. I actually booked a job on my first take. Wow. Which I was reading off of my iPad because I hadn't even had time to memorize the lines. When I got to set, it took eight hours to shoot that scene. Really? Wow. Yeah, they had three cameras running, three angles that they had to shoot. I know these big shows, man, they take forever for like a a a minute and a half scene. Wow. And on this, I've got like one line. It's not easy 
to keep your heart open for five, six hours. Yeah. And to respond to a moment that even now, if I think about it, because I've got three boys is so tender and, 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 and fragile. You know, I've done plays where I had to kill my best friend on stage, you know, of mice and men where George has to shoot Lenny and going through those preparations just off stage to come in and to just point a fake gun. And I've gotten so emotional on stage uh, on one of the performances of a mice and men. I, started hyperventilating and I, I actually passed out as mm-hmm. the black, I almost blacked out at the blackout. It's not easy to live a life where you're vulnerable. You've got to have ironically a lot of resilience and strength on the inside of you. Like the infrastructure of your insides has to be pretty strong in order for you to live in a tender way. Mm. But if you're going to be an artist, and I would suggest if you're going to be a human, I don't actually know that we have a choice. Yeah. If you're going to be connected to friends, if you're going to be connected to your children, if you're going to be connected to God, your spouse, you've got to live in a kind of place of vulnerability and fragility. I don't much like you, and this is why I enjoy these conversations with you, you know, I, I so respect your perspective on failure. I don't, I don't know that I look at a lot of things today through the lens of success and failure. Hmm. It exists. I get it. It comes up. I'm not saying it's all gone. But dude, when you raise four kids and you have really horrible seasons, tough seasons, seasons where you screw up as a parent, where you screw up as a spouse, where you screw up as a leader, you kind of come to a place where you're like, I don't, I don't really know what success or failure is. I'm, I'm trying to pay more attention these days to the response in my wife's eyes, to the quality of conversation I'm having with my son Knight in the kitchen, where I go, I feel good these days when my kids are around the table and we're laughing, mm-hmm. I feel good when I can make good on a promise to my youngest son. Say, do you want to hop in a car with me and drive to a set in mm-hmm. LA? Yeah. And just to spend 48 hours with him. If you want to call something success, I guess, and if you want to use that word, that's how I would define it. I love that. I wonder if, how much of that comes with age and experience. <laughs> because I remember... Young, when you're younger, everything's so linear. It's like, you know, you, you think that these moments are going to be so euphoric and, and what you think is important in life. And, and then, but I'm like, I mean, I, I just turned 30. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm still young, but I feel like. But you live, man. Yeah, I've, I've had experience. You know, I've had a lot of experience with, with what people would call success and people would call failure. And I'm like, if somebody were to ask me, well, off the top of your head, what's the happiest moment you can think of in the last month? And it would, it, would, it wouldn't be money I made or a book that went well or an award. It would be like, oh, dude, well, actually, me and my little brother Benjamin are playing pickleball, and we had a moment where we just, like, smoked these older ladies, <laughs> and he had this big smile on his face, and me seeing him have a big smile on his face and know that, like, he hasn't had the happiest season the last couple months, so for some reason, seeing him laugh, like a heartfelt laugh, made me want to cry of happiness just because I get to see him happy. And I'm like, if, if, I, if, 20 year old, if 30-year-old Brian would be like, hey, 20-year-old Brian, like your your happiest moments are moments of deep connection with the people you love and seeing them like experience life in a way that's beautiful. Like, no, 
No, like the happiest moments are going to be winning this award or making this money or getting this girl and doing. And it is funny how you're talking because you're when you say like a moment with your wife, a moment with your son, having your kids around the table. I'm like, yeah, that's facts. Like that's obviously having your kids around the table, your family and having a relationship with your kids because that can't be taken for granted nowadays. I'm like, that's the most beautiful thing. And that's the only thing that lasts. And I love that you you have that perspective and that mindset. And I think that because you have that, you can hold this dream and this love and this craft in the entertainment industry in entertainment industry with almost like a loose hand. So there's not this desperation that you have to achieve something. And it's almost like the universe or whatever you call it, it almost like is repelled by desperation. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like when you when you too bad want to date somebody or ask somebody on a date and you're so desperate and it's kind of like, uh, I don't know what it is, but there's something off-putting about you. It's almost like you can feel that with actors or, yes. or people where it's like, there's like, there's this insane desperation. I have to have this, not motivation. You know, I don't want to confuse the two, but desperation to where you're like able to approach it with a low stakes mentality to where the pressure isn't going to hinder your performance as much. Does that make sense? You're right on point, man. I mean, I would agree with you on every single thing that you said. I don't, I don't know anything in life where when you clench your butt cheeks and get constipated <laughs> yeah. and raise stakes to DEFCON 5. People are like, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, that was so enjoyable, that performance you did with clenched teeth. The best work, whether it's relational work, I mean, I, I mean, whether you're listening to George, everybody's talking about this right now. Like, Danny Silk used to say like this, his job, and he, he's one of the leaders in our environment. I consider him a mentor in my life. Has helped me have better relationships and so on and so, so forth. And and there's this one killer phrase that he, he would always say, which is like, my job when I walk into a room is to lower anxiety. And so when I've directed, when I directed kids, it's like, yeah, they, they've never done this before and they're nervous and they're scared. Or maybe my wife is going through a tough time, you know, teaching a class or something like this, or she had a rough day with the kids. Or my son gets off of a, sh- a shift from Chick-fil-A and he just got berated by a woman who, you know, who wanted her third cup of Coke Zero. My job, I jokingly call myself, I try to be like the human Xanax. Let me just walk into the room. Yeah. Let me just see if by love, kindness, sense of humor, let me see if I can make a joke. Let me just see if I can kind of binky this moment down, mm-hmm. lower stuff. For me, my work, now when I audition, that's what I try to do. I try to be as low stakes, relaxed and accessible as possible to whatever moment is being presented to me. And and I think for me, the key around the industry is to actually just be grateful. I'm now grateful to get to step on a set of a show that's been on air for 20 years with people who are at the top of their game. And somehow they invited this kid from Miami who had no sense of culture behind him to be a part of this team for the day. Um, I, I count it now as a, as a privilege to get to do it versus something that I'm either guaranteed or entitled to. Yeah, I love that. What's next for you? You know, man, I'm starting to go through a season of decompressing. I, I'm, I'm realizing that when, when you're a leader, you know, in our environment or whatever, or when you've done things that the outside world perceives as big, I know you can relate. The thing about it is, is that you start to measure your risk-taking according to how other people are perceiving you. 
So if they perceive you to be doing these big things, then all of a sudden you go, oh, you know, well, maybe I am a risk taker. Here's what I started to notice. Yeah, so I've been in the industry for 30-something years. So when I step on for a one-day guest spot on Grey's Anatomy, this is not necessarily to put it down, but to put it in perspective. For me, for what I trained for, it's like I took a swing and I hit a ball and I, I did all right, man. I, you know, I landed a single or something like this, okay? But that's not what I trained to do. That's, that's not the level that I want to be living at. So while now I'm postured in gratitude, I'm now realizing that I had actually begun to implode a little bit and not dream big enough. Mm. So while I build, Maya Angelou, this, this poet, says that when you busy the little brain, your big brain dreams. So what she would do, you know, she's like this, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning poet, and she would sweep. And when she would sweep the floor, then all of a sudden her big brain, you know, mm -hmm. the, the creative one just would start to go. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm physically engaged. It's ping pong for me. Okay. Like ping pong. Meditative, right? Yeah. Pa 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 and if I can busy the little mm -hmm. monkey brain, it's like, ooh, yep. man. The <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I've been building this writing studio in the back, and I've realized that there's this thing that I'm supposed to write. Now, for me, writing is one of the highest callings. And so for me to say that I'm now, and I've actually now just confessed this to my wife, um, I, I, I told her this thing that God has put on my heart to write. And I realized that I had put it on a shelf because I was afraid of rejection. Hmm. Now, if you looked at me from the outside, I get in front of people, I talk all the time, I lead teams, I do this, I do that, I hop on a set, I do my job. I don't think anybody from the outside would ever say about me, except for those that really, really know me, hey man, you've started to dream small. And so what's next for me is um, I'm building a space that for me is going to be a sacred space that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be going into on a daily basis and writing. I love that. There's a lot of things that I'm, I think I'm, I'm feeling this deep desire to say. It's funny how we get these, I, I, I fully feel what you're saying. I don't want to keep it for too much longer because it's the Christmas Eve Eve. But it's funny that you're building a space to go write. Mm. It's interesting. As creatives, we get ideas, but we also need a place to go and release the idea. And so everywhere I'm at, wherever I move to or live, I have to create a space where I'm going to create. And this is like my space, my area. They're playgrounds, exactly. sandboxes, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm really excited. Uh, Tack's new office building is almost done. I went there yesterday with my girlfriend and we're just walking around and I'm like, oh my God. Like we've had a lot, we've had a lot of spaces we put employees, but we haven't had our own. Like we bought this, this is our building. It's so, I mean, it's, it's exciting, but I have like in my home in San Diego, I have like a, a little space near the fireplace that I have for my writing and everything. And it's, it's worth all the time you invest into it. Absolutely. Because you get to go there and you get to, that's where you write. That's where you tap into the creativity. Yeah, we're that's kinesthetic where. creatures, man. And, and we're, we're creatures of play. And so, you know, if we've got Legos, we're going to play a certain way. Exactly. We've got crayons and paper. We're, yep. there's, there's another kind of play. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm excited for you. Thank you, bro. I, David, I, I honestly think that um, we're going to see you a lot more you, on TV and in in the in the on the big screen. And I, I, your lips, I, you're a really amazing actor. Thank you, man. Like, I mean, I've seen you act, right? Like, I'm not. I know I have a lot of friends who are pursuing acting, and I can look at their art and go, like, yeah, you know, you're you're believable. <laughs> You know, or you can look at some and go, you're not believable. I, I, there's no, I know why you're not booking because you, you suck, but like you're, you're, you're so good at it. Thank you, man. And, and I, I mean, you know, I haven't shown my girlfriend yet you on Jack Ryan, but I remember I'll, I, I haven't seen the series. Mm -hmm. I just, 
fast forward until your face shows. And I'm like, there he is. And it's I'm, like my mom. That's yeah. what my mom does. And that's all I'm like, cause I, I can't commit to it. I probably need to watch it cause I heard it's good, but I I'm watching you and I'm watching from a very judgmental eye, like a critical eye, sure. not like just, yeah, critical is a better word where it's like, I'm looking is, can I tell he can see the camera? Can I, and I'm like, damn, like this guy's so good. And, uh, and I'm like, to me, when I see that level of, talent, skill, craft. It's like, I feel like it's just a matter of time. Thank you, man. And I'm so excited. I know that whatever opportunities you get presented, you're going to knock it out of the park. And I know some people say luck is when opportunity, when preparation meets opportunity. Amen. And I'm like, and you're so prepared and I'm, <laughs> I'm excited for the like the big, big opportunity. I mean, you've had so many, I mean, obviously you've done so many big things. Like it's funny you talking about the Grey's Anatomy thing being like, you know, a little hit. And I'm like, for some actors, that's huge for them. Totally. And so, and I never want to sound like I'm being dismissive of it, but I think it's like, I think we've got to keep challenging ourselves. It's what I love about you. It's like, hundred percent. There's this fitful yeah. energy about you, man. It's like, yes, I've accomplished this. I want to find a, a place of both ambition, yeah. gratitude, and then continuing to risk. Yeah. Till my last flipping breath, bro. Yeah. And I think that that's a hard thing to find because it is like, you need to look at it and be like, that's standard for me. Yep. You know, that's the, that's base for it's me. kind of life I want to live. Yeah. And, um, and then some people might understand that and be like, you should, you know, it's like, no, no, but I'm shooting for this. That's the reason. So yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks Such for taking pleasure, time to talk and answer my questions. And um, yeah, I'm excited to have you on in the future. See you soon.